How many of the world's problems do you think could be solved with money? How much better could we make the world if all the money required could be thrown at its problems? Would we be able to close that elusive gap between our troubled society and that ever-elusive utopian society that everyone longs for? What about when it comes to the church? If we were to give enough money to God, would we be able to instantly fulfill the Great Commission? Could God do much more if Christians gave more to nonprofits and churches and the poor? Or is God hindered in any way from increasing or advancing his kingdom because of our limited resources? You can probably predict that my answer to these questions is no. Uh, and yet, in today's world, we sometimes operate with the assumption that money is the one true God that makes the world go round. And if we only had enough of it, then all of life's problems would disappear. Uh, it's still hard to overstate the importance of money uh, in our society. It is an important thing. And I think that might be the reason why we sometimes carry those kinds of burdens into religion as well. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the role of money and what it should play in our lives and what God expects us to do with it. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus exposes some of the same misconceptions that we all have in regards to our money as it relates to specifically worship. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And you can find this on page 849 if you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chairs. We come to a point in the life of Jesus in which his remaining time on earth is very short. Uh, we're in the last week of his life, just days away from his crucifixion. And Jesus has spent the last week of his life in Jerusalem going to the temple, teaching, uh, rebuking in some cases, and being confronted by various religious authorities, uh, generally seeking to trap him in his talk because of his influence over the people. Uh, in all but one conversation out of five so far, the religious leaders have been painted in a negative light. Uh, most recently, uh, Jesus has exposed the teachings, he's critiqued the teachings of the scribes on what they, are belie what they believed about the Messiah, that he was merely the son of David, meaning an earthly king, rather than David's Lord, the supreme ruler over all things. So if Jesus has just critiqued their doctrine in the previous passage, in our passage this morning, he's going to critique their practice. Jesus said all of this knowing that many of the people assumed him to be the very Son of God. He, right in front of them, claimed this kind of authority. Well, let's read our text now to find out what he says next. Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. It's important to note that this particular teaching segment marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, He'll go on to teach some uh, lengthy discourses in chapter 13, and he'll go on with his disciples to institute the Lord's Supper in chapter 14. Uh, But this is the last instance of Jesus teaching publicly to people. If you knew the moment of your death was going to occur soon, which Jesus did, what are some of the things that you would want to tell others? What would be some of the last things you wanted others to hear you say? Well, Jesus issues a stern warning about the malpractice of the religious authorities and instructs his disciples about matters of discipleship. And just like he has taught in the past, the values and the ethics of the kingdom of God could not be more different than the values and the ethics of the world. If you're looking for a main idea of this text, I'd summarize it this way. The way to honor God is not through public recognition, but private devotion and dependence. The way to honor God is not through public recognition, but private devotion and dependence. Uh, each, each week we preach uh, in a format or a style that's sometimes called expositional preaching, uh, in which we just go section by section seeking to understand what the text is saying and then uh, exposing what it means and then applying that meaning to our life. And so as we do that, there's two clear paragraphs in this passage, and so my sermon is just going to have two points, one for each paragraph. So let's begin with verses 38 through 40, that first paragraph. Beware of the scribes, point one. Beware of the scribes. This is what Jesus is teaching the people, to beware. It's the only command in this section of verses, in this last speech of his. Beware of the scribes. Watch out. Look out. Be on alert. Pay attention. Warning. Why does Jesus warn them about the scribes? Uh, Probably the same reason that uh, people warn others about anything. Uh, Just think about warning signs that you may be familiar with. Most commonly, beware of dog, right? Usually means there is some kind of dog that might chew your leg off behind the fence if you go over it. Danger, steep cliffs ahead. Warning, high voltage. Caution, shark-infested waters. These types of signs are usually in yellow or red with all capital letters in bold and exclamation points. Why? Because there is danger behind them. Your attention is needed because something will threaten your your well-being if you ignore the sign. And that's the same thing that Jesus here is warning those listening about the scribes, that there is something about them that is dangerous if they are not alerted to it. Uh, Remember that the scribes are the ones who are supposed to teach the very word of God and tell people how they're to live. And so you would think that if the Messiah showed up 
from the religion of the scribes, <laughs> he would tell them, probably in his parting words, these scribes, teachers of mine, listen to them. These are the ones that you should submit to. Of course, if you have been with us through this long study in the Gospel of Mark, then you may not be very surprised at Jesus' warning here, pointing to the leaders of the religion and actually telling them to not follow them. Uh, because this is pretty much the reputation of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're blind guides, shepherds that feed themselves and starve the sheep, leaven that spreads to the entire loaf. Now, the reason they're dangerous and the reason Jesus warns his listeners about them is because they will not lead in truth. They cannot, in fact, because their practice is corrupt. Uh, they're not an accurate picture of piety and obedience. If you follow someone who is phony, then you will be much worse off. Uh, most likely, all they have to teach others is how to fake godliness. And their religious practices, everything they do, is in order to be seen by others and is as valuable as counterfeit gold. It's worthless in the eyes of God. Appearances may gain recognition of the world, but what is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? What value is it really if you only accrue yourself, for yourself a stricter judgment? Jesus gives us the reasons to beware in verses 38 and 39. He says they like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. A little commentary from Jesus elsewhere will help us understand the behavior of uh, these people. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6 in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. There's a lot of parallels to what Jesus describes about the scribes here in Mark 12. He says they walk in the marketplaces in order to be seen. They like greetings. Uh, the scribes themselves believed or held themselves much higher than others around them. Uh, when he says that they like greetings in the marketplaces, what, what it means is they would walk around and others were uh, basically required or encouraged to greet them with honorific titles like father or rabbi or master. These long robes that they wore were festal garments. They, com they communicated purity, distinction from the normal people in the world. 
Much like a bride coming down the idol, sometimes uh, folks were required to stand when they came into a room. Uh, or like a power-ranked rank, uh, military official would come in a room and soldiers would stand at attention. This is what the scribes wanted and required when they walked around in the marketplaces. The best seats in the synagogue, uh, just to give you another picture, were benches along the side where all the common people would sit in the middle on the floor. The point here is that they like to be thought of as important. They like to be seen as godly and above the rest of the people. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem, of course, is that none of these things have anything to do with godliness. Appearances can be fabricated. Uh, Everyone likes to be thought of well, right? Uh, No one wants others to not think well of them. Uh, We know this well in our culture uh, that is so individualized, uh, that is obsessed with things like social media, where you can control a lot of what your life looks like and just present it in a perfect package to others. Well, friends, the same is true today. Appearances are just that, appearances. The sad reality is there are plenty of places where professing Christians are not true Christians. Because it's not hard to learn Christian lingo. Uh, It's not hard to come to church and say you believe or to quote the Bible. Uh, And people are either deceiving themselves when they do this or intentionally trying to convince others for their own personal gain. Uh, You can get a Ph.D. in theology. You can learn original languages. You can do all of these things which might be good in and of themselves, but they don't tell you anything about the heart. None of those things mean you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You can fake repentance. You can fool others around you. But you cannot fool God. He sees the secrets and the hearts of men. Uh, Listen to 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is during the time that God rejects Saul as king of Israel. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse to choose the new king. And uh, and one of which, one of the sons of Jesse, of course, is David, uh, the famous king of Israel. And David is the youngest, uh, the shepherd boy. And when Samuel goes, he sees, I assume, the, the eldest, his brother Eliab. And Samuel, when he sees him, He says, surely, (laughs) this is the Lord's anointed. And then God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David is described as uh, ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes, (laughs) which... uh, later on, you find out when he faces Goliath, uh, means it's not a good look. You don't want your king or your commander of armies uh, to look that way. He did not look like a soldier or a uh, a warrior of any kind. Uh, But the Lord didn't choose him for that reason. The Lord chose him for his heart. He is our Heavenly Father who sees in secret. He knows our motives and our thoughts, our desires. And there's something that is uniquely scandalous about faking religion. J.C. Ryle, a pastor in the 1800s, said this. He said, Of all the sins into which men can fall, none seem so exceedingly sinful as false profession and hypocrisy. At all events, none have drawn from the Lord's mouth such a strong language and such heavy denunciations. 
It is bad enough to be led, to, to be led away captive by open sin and serve diverse lusts with pleasures, but it is even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. Jesus therefore teaches that we are to steer clear of those who are like the scribes, who boast in their own godliness and who consider themselves above others. They do things in order to be seen by others. And Jesus goes on to say that they not only lie about their lives to others with their hypocrisy, but they even take advantage of others, specifically the most vulnerable in society. Verse 40, he says that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They not only harm themselves by offending God, they not only harm others by deceiving them, they even use their positions to exploit others for their gain. Satan loves to make sin look virtuous. The people bought into the whole image of powerful and important scribes, so much so that extending hospitality was seen as pious, was seen as a good and um, worthy thing to do. Uh, one commentator noted that, uh, that men even put their finances at the disposal of the scribes, which just seems like a system that is bound to be abused. Now, perhaps it was the way that the scribes devoured widows that earned such a strict rebuke from Jesus. We don't really know how they did that for sure, uh, but we could think of a few ways, certainly. They could have charged outlandish lawyer fees. It may have been mismanaging funds to their advantage. Uh, they could have charged high prices in the temples. We've seen that already. They could have acquired assets of the family, deceased family members, and used them for their own gain. Whatever the case, Jesus warns that these false professors act unjustly towards others. And to harm a widow is a particularly egregious sin because the widows are the most vulnerable in society. Widows and orphans specifically, throughout Scripture, uh, God's people are commanded to care for these people among them because they have the greatest need. Jesus shows that the scribes are exhibit A of the most powerful and most resourceful people in society, abusing their position at the expense of the weakest and most vulnerable. That's the reason Jesus says a greater condemnation is coming to them at the end of verse 40. Uh, leaders are always held to a higher standard in the Bible uh, because, of course, they have a greater responsibility over others. Uh, that's one of the reasons James says that not everyone should teach because there will be a stricter judgment. And if you want to see how misusing authority offends the Lord and read about it in length, uh, read Ezekiel 34 sometime uh, where the Lord speaks against the shepherds of Israel who have fed themselves and starved his people. So how can we apply this warning from Jesus against the scribes to our own lives? Uh, first, be humble. Uh, Christians should be the most humble people on earth because we know how sinful we are. Uh, and we know that we have been saved completely by the grace of God and by His power and nothing of our own effort. Boast not in what we have done, but what Christ has done in us. Uh, we have to be careful not to follow such false professors. Now, anytime you read about hypocrites in the Bible, uh, it's so easy to say, Lord, let me not be like this. Or I wish this one relative or this one friend of mine could 
hear these things or read this passage. But friends, we need to recognize that the pagans are not generally in danger of being known as hypocrites. The people who are most susceptible are the religious. Therefore, we should always stop first and reflect for a moment and consider the posture of our hearts before a holy God and beware that we don't become like the scribes. For those who uh, are not Christian, uh, if, if you're with us today, we're so glad that you're here. You're always welcome, of course, to come. Uh, and I want to apply this text to you to simply say, uh, if you have seen bad examples of Christianity that you would describe as uh, hypocritical, to not discount Christianity on the basis of seeing counterfeit professors. Uh, real Christians know that they are sinners. And whatever good deeds we perform are done in response to God's love to us. Christ's selfless death on the cross was done because no amount of good deeds of our own could make us right before God. It is purely by grace, as we sang earlier. You know, in identifying uh, counterfeit things, um, it helps to know what makes them counterfeit, of course. Uh, You know this if you've ever been warned in your job about phishing emails, PH, phishing emails. Uh, These are basically scam emails that try to take your information for the sake of stealing your identity or uh, they're just simply trying to get money from you. And you can usually detect them if you know what to look for. Uh, And some of the things that you might look for are going to be a strange email address uh, from a known company, one with numbers, for example. That just doesn't make sense. You might look for spelling errors uh, or just wrong facts, uh, promotions that don't exist, things like that. But knowing the types of factual mistakes that make up a counterfeit, that's only half of the battle, really. Uh, It's helpful to know those things. But if you want to become really good at identifying counterfeit examples, then you need to know what the authentic version looks like, uh, right? If it's, if it's money, you need to know what holograms are supposed to be there or a driver's license. And if you know what authentic, authentic things look like, it's going to be far easier to spot the fakes. The same thing can be true if, uh, if you have seen what you would consider religious hypocrites in your life, which I'm guessing you have. I think we all probably have. Uh, Before you write off Christianity, make sure you get to know true Christians with a godly and credible profession of faith first. Uh, These people are not so easy to find uh, on, say, social media or TV for the very reasons that Jesus rebukes the scribes in our passage today. If we are exercising careful membership, uh, then I would humbly suggest that hopefully... Many of our members would exemplify this kind of private and sincere godliness that does not boast in outward appearances. Brothers and sisters, we must be resolved to provide a true and sincere witness for the world of who Christ is and what he's done. We must show the world that there are not only hypocrites, but true and godly and sincere Christians as well. Resolve to practice your religion in private as much as you do in public. And I would say even more so. Uh, If you're a parent in the room, uh, then this is (laughs) easily applicable to you, right? Uh, Because in your own private home, there are still people watching you. Uh, Your kids most likely are watching you more than you realize they are. Uh, Your kids may not grow up to believe in Jesus the way you do. 
but you should at least do the best you can to make sure that they know your beliefs are sincere, that you are an authentic believer in God, that you practice what you preach. Few things can harden against Christianity like hypocrisy does. Now, one practical way of doing this, I think, is just praying in private the same way you pray in public. Uh, to not have a kind of strange praying voice in front of others that is very different from the one that you use at home in front of your kids. Make sure your kids know that the last thing you want for them is for them to pretend to be a Christian in order to gain your approval. Uh, many kids grow up uh, who, who grow up in Christian homes. I think fear telling their parents that they don't believe uh, in the Bible the same way uh, for fear of rejection, for fear of losing that kind of love that they have. Uh, but friends, teach them that you don't want to see a greater condemnation come upon them. Uh, teach them that the approval of God is more important than your own approval, and yet also more lovely than any approval on earth. Finally, beware of the desire to be seen and known by others. This is something that I think just our sin nature uh, causes in all of us. To be, to, to be recognized and praised by others. Brothers and sisters, beware of this for fear that you might become the very thing that Jesus condemns with such severe terms. Remember that Jesus said to his disciples when they were arguing about who the greatest was among them. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Point one is beware of the scribes. Point two be like the widow. Be like the widow. Uh, these two sections are right next to each other in order to provide an acid contrast between them. Uh, this is oil and water. They couldn't be more different. The scribes Jesus condemns, but the widow he commends. Uh, something you need to understand about the offering situation in the temple is that it was a bit like a tourist attraction uh, during Passover week. Uh, and we know this because Israel normally had about 50,000 people in the city, and that number increases to over 200,000 uh, during Passover week. And, of course, many of the activities of Passover week revolve around going to the temple, offering sacrifices, offering tithes for money, and things like that. Uh, not only that, but the temple offering was kind of like the central bank of Israel. Uh, the, the money itself was meant to go towards helping the poor, like widows and orphans. Uh, it was also meant to fund the Levites, uh, who organized and oversaw all of the temple activities. And so people saw a part of their national identity, religious observance, and commitment to God all wrapped up in providing offerings this way. The offering was a very normal part of life for them. Um, and it carried both religious and moral weight, seen as an act of godliness. Uh, what it looked like was 13 different receptacles to catch money uh, that were made of brass and shaped like a trumpet. And um, what you can imagine when I describe that is as coins are being thrown and dropped in, it makes sound. Uh, and of course, the larger the donation, the larger sound it's going to make. Uh, and so this is why it was something of a spectacle for people to watch as large sums for the average person, probably larger amounts than they have ever seen before in their life, are being dedicated to these offering receptacles. Uh, Mark tells us that the poor widow put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And um, Mark uses the, the Roman term for his audience. But if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see there's a footnote that explains the value. Uh, these two pennies were the smallest coins in the currency in circulation at the time. And they equal, their worth is something like a 64th of a denarius. Uh, the denarius is the one with Caesar's image on it, uh, right? That's supposed to be about a day's wage. So you work for a full day, you get paid a denarius. Uh, these two coins equated to 164th of that. Her gift was not just less in terms of quantity. Um, and this is clear, I think, if you just think of a modern example. If a very wealthy person <laughs> opens up a briefcase of money, for example, it's probably not full of ones and fives and tens, uh, right? I mean, that would still maybe be a decent chunk of money. But if it's someone really wealthy who's wanting to make a statement uh, or a bargain, it's going to be full of hundreds or perhaps even gold bars. Well, similarly, these large sums that were uh, given by the rich people were probably not giant bags of, of coins like the widows. They were probably silver and gold coins, to put it in proportion. This poor widow had the least coin and only had two. And yet look what Jesus says in verse 43 and 44. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You can imagine that uh, people probably wanted to know what Jesus thought about the large sums that were being given in the temple that day. And with this great contrast, Jesus is teaching something very profound by pointing out the widow's offering. And it's that God's value system is very different than ours. Uh, what Jesus makes clear is that God cares less about uh, the monetary value of a thing and more about the cost to the giver. It's the expense to the person giving the offering more than the, ver the value of the gift itself. And that's why Jesus can say that the widow gave more than all her contributors. Uh, she gave the highest proportion of what she owned of everyone there. All she had to live on. This is far more than the wealthy who gave out of their abundance, meaning they have lots of extra cash on hand to put in. Their lifestyle probably doesn't change a whole lot, uh, so they can keep plenty for themselves and still feel good about donating a large amount to the temple. So why does Jesus point this out? Is he just condemning wealthy people for, not, for being wealthy and for not giving all of their money away? Uh, no, actually, that's not the point. Uh, the point is that worship, true worship, begins with the right motive. It works from the inside out. It doesn't begin on the outside and then work its way in. This widow is the complete opposite of the scribes that Jesus condemned. Uh, even in appearance, think about this. She doesn't have a long festal robe. She's not given respectful titles when she walks around. She's not placed in the seats of honor at feasts, meaning close to the host. Uh, she didn't have much to give in the eyes of the world. If you consider the offering uh, that was collected at the end of the day, the total sum of everything that was given, uh, her donation would have been next to nothing. Take it away, probably would not matter. No one would notice. Uh, that's how small it is. Not only that, but her gift probably didn't make any noise when she dropped it in the offering. But Jesus points to her and says that this is a heart that truly loves God. 
because she depends on him with her whole life. Jesus sees the sacrifice of the giver as far more important than the value of the gift itself. God does not need our money. He does not need our sacrifices. He is Lord of the universe. He made all things. Why would he need anything from us? Not only that, but everything we have has come from him. He's the giver of all good gifts. But the heart of the widow recognizes that to God belongs all things. Therefore, she can trust him to provide for her future as well. Another way to describe uh, the value of her gift is to describe it uh, not only in terms of sacrifice, but in terms of ability. Jesus is concerned that we give as we are able to give. Uh, That amount is going to look different, of course, from person to person. So the question for anyone who seeks to follow Christ is, what am I able to give in this stage of life? Uh, Jesus is not saying that we should give away all we have. Of course, you have other God-given responsibilities that you need to tend to and be wise about. He's simply pointing out the widow's incredible example of faith and worship. And it's faith and sacrifice that even the poorest can make. So don't assume that you'll be a better giver if you had more money, right, in your budget or if you got a raise at work. The value is not the amount but the sacrifice to you. Let's be honest with ourselves for a minute. Most of us, I think, probably don't have the problem of giving too much. Uh, Now, I think if that's a concern of yours, I would love to talk to you about that. There have been times where I've advised people that uh, maybe it's unwise to be giving what they're giving based on a number of different factors. But I would say that generally, that's not something that we struggle with a whole lot in America today. But if there's anything that this widow teaches us, it's that poverty or circumstance should not prevent you from giving back a portion of, say, your time, your energy, your money, or any other resources that you can think of back to God. Uh, From this story, we learn that no gift is too small, and yet no gift is too large for God. No gift is too large because he's worthy of so much more than anything we have to give is worth. And yet no gift is too small as to insult him or dishonor him. All humanity is commanded to worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, the expression of such worship or the way that that plays out in each of our lives will vary from person to person. Based on, of course, things like resources, status, season of life, uh, you name it. But no matter what, it must be done with a sincere and worshipful heart. So what does this mean for us? I think um, all of these principles can apply both to uh, specific stewardship of resources, as I mentioned, um, but I do want to think specifically about tithing money because that's the example that Jesus points to in this passage. And I think it makes it a little clearer. Uh, If you're a member here and you've been to some of our member meetings, our uh, bi-monthly business meetings, you've probably heard me talk about the budget and uh, say something like this. You know, to an extent, I don't really care what these numbers say. Uh, And the reason is because we could be exceeding our predictions, we could be under it, uh, we could be meeting it exactly. And yet I have no idea if you're being faithful in your giving or not. It is totally possible that we go way over budget 
and have you know, more money than we predicted, and yet we're not being faithful in, in giving sacrificially or joyfully. It's also possible that we go way under it. We just totally miscalculate. Giving goes way down. Uh, and yet, we still may be faithful to give what we have uh, out of a heart of worship to the Lord. A budget is just a tool for us uh, to operate as a church, but as a pastor in many ways, it doesn't show me your heart. Uh, therefore, I care le- very little or relatively little about the numbers. Looks can be deceiving. So uh, that is reflected from time to time in our budget. So what can we say or how should we think through how we give our resources? Here are six quick points of application for you. One, don't think of yourself as better than others because you perceive yourself to give more than others, whatever it is that you're giving. Uh, That's one of the primary lessons of this text. It's one of the pitfalls of the scribes. The lesson to be learned is that there may be some who give far less on earth, yet in the kingdom contribute more than everyone. Uh, If you're prone to this kind of thinking, check your heart regularly. This may mean re-examining how much you plan to give each year. Uh, It's worth noting the significance uh, that she gave two of these coins because she could have easily kept one for herself, but instead she gave them both. Taking pride in giving more than others leads to a greater condemnation. Second, don't be ashamed because you think you don't give enough. Uh, If you are uh, giving in a worship and sacrificial way, Uh, think about the way Jesus must have smiled, explaining to his disciples how the widow was the one who truly gave more than all the other offerings combined. From the least to the greatest, we're all called to worship the Lord in our hearts. And the good news is that we can, no matter where you consider yourself on the social spectrum of things. It may be that in reality, what you give doesn't make a dent in our church budget, just like this widow's offering wouldn't have made a dent in Israel's national budget. Uh, But I'm here to tell you that that doesn't really matter if the amount means something to you. What matters is that you give as you are able to give in faith. Third, give joyfully. Uh, As I've already stated, we don't give in order to earn some kind of merit or favor from God or recognition from others. We give out of love because he has given us the greatest gift, himself. He's redeemed us from the pit, and he promises to work out all things for the good of those who love him. Therefore, we should give joyfully, knowing this kindness and provision for our lives. Giving is not meant to be a burden for burden's sake, but to remind us of his confidence and to teach us how to trust him and to draw nearer to him. Giving is just a mechanism that reminds us how much we have received and how little we deserve. Uh, During COVID, we were meeting outside for a while. Uh, We came back inside at a certain point. Our services were abridged because we had cut out a a number of things. One of those things was uh, the actual offertory itself. And uh, what we found during that time was members were still faithful to give online through digital means. Uh, And I decided at that point when we were reverting back to a normal service that I still wanted to include uh, that portion of the service where we pass around the plates or bags, pouches, whatever these are. Traditionally, I think of them as plates in my mind. 
Uh, I still wanted that time in the service uh, where that's passed around, even if everyone in the room gives online. And the reason is because that very part of the service helps us to worship in this way, helps us to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus in thanksgiving, helps us to remind ourselves uh, that we are the Lord's. Fifth, give sacrificially. I heard a pastor one time uh, in college say, give where it hurts, in a way to describe you know, where that line is for you. Um, and again, he didn't mean to handicap yourself, uh, but to give perhaps just a little bit more than what you're comfortable with. Uh, because otherwise, it's not really a sacrifice. It's just giving out of your abundance. So pray and ask yourself if it's easy to give the amount that you give. And if it is, perhaps you should give more. Sixth, pray. Search your heart and consider asking others uh, to help you determine whether or not you should give more or give less. Uh, Paul says this. He says, don't give reluctantly or out of compulsion, but with a cheerful heart. So pray, consider thoughtfully, and worship the Lord in secret. These final teachings from Jesus show the importance of what he has said all along, that true religion is not a matter of external activity, appearances, presentation, or achievements. It's about inward devotion of the heart. It's about humbling yourself before God in private. I think naturally the person who does this uh, will exemplify godliness to an extent, but not in the same way as those who boast in the streets. Money is not the answer to all of life's problems. Jesus is. No amount of money can redeem sinners. No amount of giving can make our hearts clean. No amount of external works can cleanse what is within. And the debt that our sin has stored up for us is far greater than we could ever afford to pay back or that we could ever pretend to cover. We need new hearts. And we need daily repenting and trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross that accomplishes just that. The widow's costly gift is just a preview of an even bigger sacrifice that will be made during Passover week. The widow gave all she had, though it was very little. The Messiah, Jesus, would give his very life on the cross as a sacrifice to God in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and given his righteousness. It's because of his ultimate gift that we respond with sincere devotion. Christ's death and resurrection makes us new, gives a new heart and thereby allowing us to worship in spirit and in truth. We don't need the recognition of the world. And in fact, this kind of dedication in private will most likely be seen by the world as a waste. But our audience is an audience of one, the God who knows the secrets of the hearts of men and yet gave himself up for us. Uh, The way to honor God is not through public recognition, but private devotion and dependence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in your kindness and your mercy towards us, By your spirit, you would help us to heed Jesus' warnings of the scribes. 
Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the desire to be seen or recognized by others, uh, to boast in any kind of uh, progress we've made in sanctification or godliness that we might have. Lord, we pray that we would trust in the finished work of Christ alone, that we would be humble every day of our lives. We pray these things because we know that the work of your Son Jesus on the cross was effective, and therefore no more is needed from us. Our inheritance is secure. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.